sermon series in the Psalms. I thought you just didn't want me to preach out of Revelation again. So you were trying to, he called me and said, just preach from the Psalms. Like, you know, (laughs) you didn't do that great a job, so leave it alone. Um, Let's let's be clear. Uh, The Psalter is the Christian's songbook. It's our book. It was Jesus' book. It was his songbook. It's where his songs, his prayers came from. Of the seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross, twice he is quoting the Psalms. First, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22. And when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's quoting again from Psalm 33. So the Psalter is the Christian's book. It's our book. We should read it. We should sing it. We should pray it, shouldn't we? And uh, I think uh, sometimes uh, Baptists may have a little bit to learn from their uh, Presbyterian brothers on this score. Uh, We sing the Psalter, and uh, I think it's a good practice for for you all to adopt. Psalm 1 stands at the head not only of the first book of the Psalms, you know that the Psalter is divided into five books, Psalm 1 stands not only at the head of the first book of the Psalms, but at the head of the Psalter itself. And so it forms a bit of an introduction to the book of the Psalms. And uh, it it does so by introducing some concepts that come up again and again as we go through the Psalter. Namely, the principle of the path, that uh, the end of the righteous and of the wicked, and uh, adherence to the law of God. Uh, These are repeated patterns and themes in the Psalms, and particularly here, the the principle of the path. This is something that uh, we see other places in the Scripture, the idea that uh, there are two roads, um, not just in in Scripture, right? Robert Frost, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. But even in the Scripture, Moses says in Deuteronomy, see, I have set before you today life and death, blessing and curse. Moses says, uh, you know, choose you this day whom you will worship, either the gods that your father served across the river, the gods of the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hittites. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Jesus brings up the principle of the path when he, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about the wise man and the foolish man, uh, two trees, and so on. There's, there's a number of times that the Scripture discusses that we are, as it were, on a road. And this road diverges to the right and to the left. And those of us who trust in God's unfailing love and who submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and live under the gospel of Jesus Christ must take one of those paths. We must take the path that leads to everlasting life. And those who do not submit to the Lordship of Christ and do not live under his saving rule, well, they find themselves on a different path that has quite a different destination. But the principle of the path is laid out here, and it's laid out in a simple parallelism. The, the blessed man is set against the wicked first in his loves or in his desires, uh, secondly in his attributes or his qualities, and thirdly in his destination. And so we just want to take a look down through the psalm to see how these two paths are contrasted. And, of course, Psalm 1 is, is uh, eminently practical. It's not the sort of psalm where you can read it, sing it, pray it, and go on your way without having been affected by it. 
And so it's instructive for us in this way as well, that when we read the Psalms, we are to, to see what God requires of us as we read them. We'll find ourselves on one of two paths. And so it's, it's good to attend to this. First, this man is blessed. He's blessed in that he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Rather, his delight is in God's law, and on his law he meditates day and night. Uh, you, you could say that the two, the two paths are distinguished here in terms of uh, the, the associations of those who are on these paths. The blessed man, well, we should say the wicked man, he associates with, uh, with sinners, with the wicked, with scoffers. He's hearing the counsel of the wicked. He's hanging out with sinners. He sits down with scornful men. These are his associations. It would lead him on this path uh, to, to wickedness. Um, you, we would expect, almost, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked and so on. Rather, who walks in the counsel of the righteous and who stands in the way of the godly and who sits in the seat of the wise or something like that. We, we would expect the contrasts to be who do you associate with? Well, the wicked man associates with wicked and ungodly people and the righteous man associates with righteous and, and godly people. That's actually not what it says. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and so on, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. His association is with God. He's not hearing the counsel of righteous men. He hears God's counsel. His delight is in God's law. It's interesting, isn't it? The phrase, his delight is in the law of the Lord. You think about delighting in the law. You know, he, 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 he's quite possibly the psalmist is referring to the the um, system of Jewish regulations and commands concerning washings and um, ritual unclean and clean foods, civic laws, things like that. Delight in this kind of law. Read Leviticus and find yourself in great delight. I think that there's something deep here. His delight is in the law of the Lord. The word law is the word Torah. First, not only to the law that Moses gave to Israel from Sinai, but also to the first five books of the Old Testament. We call those the Torah. Sometimes we call them Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these, these books give us more than just God's moral law, although certainly we find moral law within particularly Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But these books show us God's character and his action, God's life and his works, his character and his action. And so we might just cast our mind back over the first five books of the Bible, and you probably have at least some passing familiarity with Genesis and maybe with Exodus. Well, what do these books reveal about God, about his character and his loving action? 
that God created all things good. He created them good and placed a man in the middle of a garden with his wife to enjoy these things and to participate in good kingdom work, spreading the garden, to work it and to keep it. That's why Adam was placed in the garden. That then after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God gave them the promise of an eventual deliverer. One who would deliver mankind from the dominion of the serpent, who would crush the serpent's head even as his own heel was crushed or bruised. That God lovingly, after Adam and Eve fell into ruin and rebellion, begins the work of redeeming them. He makes for them clothes. He sends them off into exile, but with a promise. We see in Genesis, moving forward, that God is the kind of God who makes promises to Noah. I'll never flood the earth again. I'll put my bow in the sky as a sign. He makes promises to Abraham. Go from your country and the land that you know and, and from your father's house, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless who blesses you, and whoever curses you, him I will curse, and I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. He appears to Abraham in Genesis 15 and says, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward will be exceedingly great. He makes great and precious promises to Abraham. Go outside, number the stars, if you can even number them. So shall your offspring be. And when Abraham simply believes God's promise, God counts that to Abraham as righteousness. We see the character of God when Melchizedek comes after the, uh, the whole incident with Sodom and, and Gomorrah. Uh, Abraham has to go and rescue his nephew Lot. and Melchizedek comes and blesses Abraham by the Lord, the possessor of heaven and earth. We see God's character in the life of Joseph, who Joseph, being taken through many trials, comes to the end of his life, not quite the end of his life, but comes to the end of those trials and says to his fearful brothers, don't be afraid. What you intended for evil, the Lord intended for good. Don't we see the character of God in, there? in his loving action, his loving work? We see the work of God in Exodus then after the family of Abraham has grown into a mighty nation, has been enslaved by the Egyptians, that God calls a deliverer, Moses, and says, I've, I've heard my people's affliction. I've seen how they suffer under their taskmasters. I've remembered my covenant with them, and I'm sending you to rescue them. That God executes judgments on Egypt and all the gods of Egypt in order to rescue his people. Is your first way in Isaiah and says, O Israel, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my sight. We see his character and his loving action there. And then as God leads Israel out of Egypt, provides for them with uh, water from a rock, with manna from heaven, and gifts of quail that when they reach God's holy mountain where God himself will enter into a binding relationship, a covenant with Israel, God says to them, See, I have borne you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And he lovingly gives them his law to make them a, a righteous people who are at peace and enjoy God's blessing and are a testimony to the nations of God's steadfast and unfailing love. 
We see that at the end of Exodus, though Israel cannot stand in God's presence, the fire comes to fill the tabernacle and not even the priests can go in, that God gives purity laws to Israel's priests in the book of Leviticus so that they can know when they stand ritually clean before God and when they are ritually unclean before God. So that the uncertainty when I go in, am I going to get burnt to a crisp, is taken away. And they're able to enjoy fellowship with God. We see in Numbers that though Israel sins again and is disciplined by being cast out of the promised land so that that generation is unable to enter for 40 years, God still walks with them through the wilderness. The pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, lead Israel. Manna falls every day for 40 years. Uh, the scripture says that not even their shoes wear out because God is their faithful, loving Lord. Don't we see the character of God? And then in Deuteronomy, as Israel is about to pass over into the promised land, of course, Moses reminds them, see how the Lord has carried you all the way to this place, even as a man carries his firstborn son. And Moses sings a song about God, our rock our Deliverer. Don't we see the character of God? His perfect life and His loving work on our behalf? And so it's appropriate to delight in the law of the Lord. C.S. Lewis says that this delight is a man who has been ravished by moral beauty, caught up in a vision of God seeing him as supremely valuable, supremely beautiful. You have this kind of delight in God's law, in the testimony of God's righteous action. It's not the delight. The word delight is sort of a, you know, it's a big word, right? You you use it for a lot of things. It's not the sort of delight that a child feels, perhaps, when you've given him a, a, a new toy or when he has one of those little bubble wands and, you know, small children just... It's not that sort of delight. It might be closer to the sort of delight that a man feels on, on the morning of his wedding or that he feels when his bride is walking down the aisle. You ever look at the guy's face? You know, everybody's usually looking at the bride. You ever look at the groom when she's walking down the aisle? That's delight right there. This is the sort of delight that the righteous man has in God's law. It causes him to meditate on day and night. You know what meditation is. Meditation, it's just sustained thought. Okay, It's not like Eastern meditation where you have to empty your mind and do all sorts of weird things. Meditation is just sustained thought. Well, by that definition, we, we all meditate all the time. Maybe you meditate on your anxieties. Something been keeping you up late at night. Maybe we meditate on on the future, either with a sense of dread, you know, I'm coming toward a cliff, you know, I'm not able to to pay my mortgage, I'm falling deeper into debt, something's happening, or or maybe with a sense of hope, you know, we're saving up for that new house, or someday the kids are going to graduate and move out, and you know, we'll finally get to buy the RV and tour the states or something like that. We all meditate on something. Maybe we meditate on on our grudges, people who have wronged us. Meditate on uh, 
you know, the last episode of your favorite TV show throughout the day. Keep thinking about how funny it was. Everybody meditates on something. Psalm 1 instructs us to meditate on God's word. Everybody meditates on something. You meditate on the law of the Lord. And this is what distinguishes the blessed man from those who are not blessed. The blessed man avoids their association, the, the association of the wicked, and instead he finds his association with God's law. He delights in God's law. He meditates on God's law. And this becomes a kind of association, doesn't it? I mean, it, we, we can get the picture that the wicked are very extroverted people. They're hanging out with each other, and the, the righteous man is over here, him just himself and his Bible. But that's not really true. Once we begin to delight in God's law and to find it to be our constant meditation, don't we find ourselves finding others around us with the same love, the same delight? A.W. Tozer called it the fellowship of the burning heart. Your heart begins to burn as you read and submit to the, the law of God, as you delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You look around you and find others whose hearts similarly are burning. Well, these are the, the beginning. What drives the man to this path or what drives the man to this path? Association with wicked people, listening to their counsel, standing in their way, sitting in the seat of the scoffers, or association with the law of God, delight on the law of God, uh, meditation on the law of God. It's what sets us on a path. And then, what distinguishes the, the, the blessed man from, the, from the, uh, the wicked man? The characteristic of the path. Now walking this path, whichever path we choose, walking this path changes us. It, it shapes us and molds us, and we become a different sort of person based on the path we choose. Look at the righteous man in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. What a simple and compelling image. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. He knows where his sustenance and his nourishment are. And he is firmly rooted in the soil of the word of God watered by the word. He yields fruit in his season. His leaf doesn't wither. And that's, the psalmist calls that prospering. Be sure this isn't a prosperity kind of gospel. Meditate on the word and, and you'll be rich. Meditate on the word and you know, you'll succeed in everything that you do in a temporal and worldly sense. No. But your leaf won't wither. Be planted by streams of water. Bear fruit in due season. This is what marks the person who walks on God's path. And, and what a sad comparison to the wicked. The wicked are not so. The wicked aren't like this. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. The, the, the small, dry skin outside a, a kernel of wheat. It's like rice paper. It just blows away in the wind. There's no permanence. There's no fruitfulness. There's no rest. 
blown away. It reminds me of Psalm 73. Are you going to preach from Psalm 73 soon? Okay. Just give it a little bit so everybody forgets. It reminds me of Psalm 73 where the psalmist is meditating. He's jealous of the wicked. He says, I almost slipped when I was envious of the wicked because of their prosperity. You know, they're not in trouble as other men are. Their eyes bulge out through fatness. I don't know why you'd be jealous of that. They wear violence as a garment. Pride is their necklace. Their tongue struts through the heavens. And, and meanwhile, the psalmist finds himself not prospering in a worldly sense, but then he goes into God's temple and discerns the end of the wicked. He says, truly, you have set their feet in slippery places, how they are destroyed in a moment. Like a dream when one awakes, you despise them as phantoms, O Lord. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. You put an end to everyone who is far from me. For me, it is good to be near God. The wicked will perish. And that's the contrast here. The righteous man is planted, established, anchored, firmly rooted. In fact, his description is similar to the description of the tree of life in Revelation 21. A tree whose leaves are for the healing of the nation. A tree that bears fruit in its season. Twelve kinds of fruit. A tree that lines the banks of the river of life in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven, in the new earth, in Revelation 21. There's, an, there's a plantedness, a steadfastness. God holds this man and not the wicked. This is not a path for one who desires stability. He's like chaff. He blows away in an instant. Gone. The language of Psalm 73 is, is particularly grim at this point. Like a dream when one awakes. Or you wake up from a dream and you go, what was that dream? There's something about a dog and a bowler hat and I, I, I don't really remember. And then it's just gone. Like a dream when one awakes. That's how the wicked are. Well, they start off this path because of their, their loves. As they travel this path, they begin to, to change and take on certain qualities, the wicked, the qualities of steadfastness and rootedness and rest, and the wicked, the qualities of, of restlessness and impermanence and uselessness. But each path has an end, as all paths do. And so each person has a destination. And their destinations are quite different. Look at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgments, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You see, the, the wicked at first were marked by their associations. The wicked took counsel together, stood in the way together sat together. Here at the end, they are not associated in the congregation of the righteous. They're not to be found in the congregation of the righteous. Perhaps the fellowship that they wanted was denied to them at the last. They will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And isn't this the best thing about the blessed life? 
the best thing about the blessed life is not whatsoever he does shall prosper, is not his leaf shall not wither, is not he bears his fruit in its season. The best thing about the blessed man, in fact, the very essence of his blessedness, is that his way is known by the Lord. Isn't that a good thing? Is that a desirable thing? Well, that my way would be known by the Lord. The Lord knows the way of life. The way of the wicked will perish. Friends, we all find ourselves on one of these paths. And, and we should be careful because we can discern or try to evaluate our own lives based on the worst excesses of wickedness that we see in the world around us and make the evaluation that we are on one path or the other based on that testimony of wickedness that we see. So we, we could say, well, I, you know, I haven't gone and shot up a school, so therefore I must not be wicked. Or I'm not a serial adulterer, and therefore I must not be wicked. I'm not a drunk who's left his family, therefore I must not be wicked. Is this how God judges us, is simply by the worst of our actions? God judges us by our hearts. And, and, and so be careful, lest you think that because I am not the worst kind of sinner, therefore I must be righteous. That's a pretty low bar. And it's not God's standard for righteousness. The righteous man is not the man simply who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but the man whose delight is in God's law. So which path do you find yourself on? And, and there is no in-between, by the way. You can't sit the fence on this Perhaps early on in our Christian life, we sort of think that we can't, you know, the, 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 maybe the, when the paths diverge, they seem so close that we can I'm just going to walk in the median. That's fine. That's okay. I'm going to hedge my bets for a little bit. Before too long, we find ourselves on a path we don't want to be, heading for a destination that we don't want to go. Now, the reality is, of course, that based simply on our merits, we won't reach the blessed life. We walk in the counsel of the wicked. And it's kind of strange language. You probably don't, at any given point, at any given day, think, I'm, I'm walking in the counsel of the wicked, right? Standing in the way of sinners. Nevertheless, we adopt the principles of the world constantly, don't we? When's the last time that you shouted down your your kids and thought, they've lost all right to grace from me? Or, or where's the last time that you fudged on your taxes because, you know, the government's dirty anyways, and so why should they have my money? Or when's the last time that you clocked out early at work because your boss was on vacation? It doesn't really matter. It's not like I'm stealing, or not very much, anyway. What wicked thoughts lie in the recesses of your own heart? 
We're not going to make it the path of the, of the blessed man on our own merits. And our delight in God's law on the best day, isn't it rather mediocre? Well, the Psalms anticipates. It's not just the, the, the we said at the beginning that one of the major themes of the Psalms is the, uh, the, the, the way of wisdom, the path of the, of the wise and the path of the fool and the way of the the wicked and the way of the righteous, obedience to God's law, meditation on God's word. But the Psalms anticipates something else besides. We find it in Psalm 2. I don't want to take the thunder from Psalm 2 either, but Psalm 2 introduces the concept of the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage and the heathens set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. The concept that there is a person, a man, the Lord's anointed, who does walk righteously, who is wise, who does delight in God's law. Psalm 40 describes the, the anointed one as because you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above that of your companions. He's the one in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at your right hand, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's the one in Psalm 45 who belts on truth at his waist and rides out in righteousness. He's the Son. He's the one who did walk righteously. Who did walk according to wisdom. Who did delight in God's law. And that Son merited, earned God's favor for us who have not walked according to the way of the righteous. Jesus Christ merits His righteousness, credits His righteousness to us. And dying on a cross... He took the penalty. He, walking the way of the righteous, took on the destiny of the wicked. He was made like the wicked in His death. So that we, who were on the path of the wicked, might be taken over, adopted, and placed on the the path of the righteous. What's so important for us here is to see that, that by adherence to the Word of God, not just His moral law, but his, the revelation of His character and His loving action. We trust in Christ and faith and obedience grow in us. We walk toward Him in, in, in faithfulness and obedience and simple trust. So evaluate yourself. Which path are you on? And to say, well, well, you know, I try to do my best. It's just not good enough. It's not going to get you there. We only end up where the, where the righteous end up in the congregation of the righteous, the Lord knowing our way. And we trust in Jesus Christ, who was the righteous one who fulfilled God's law on our behalf. What a thing. The Lord knows the way of the righteous.
the way of the wicked will perish. You want that to be said of you? That the Lord knows your way? It comes by delighting in God's law and in his gospel. Word and gospel. That's what it comes down to. Think of Psalm 1. It flows just with a little bit of instruction as you go on to the rest of the Psalms. Think of Psalm 1 as an introduction to the rest of the Psalter. Leading you to delight in God's word and to trust in God's son, his anointed. And then as the prayers of the psalm become your own and as you sing the words of the psalm and adopt them, they'll lead you to faith in Christ and obedience to God's word.